Acts chapter 24. We're getting toward the end of this book of the Acts of the Apostles. We're focused on the Apostle Paul because the Lord is in these chapters. Soon he'll be on a ship headed for the city he wanted to visit. Expenses paid by the Roman Empire with safekeeping guaranteed. Before we start into Acts chapter 24, let's flip back to Acts 19 for me to refresh your memories on where we stand. Let's go back to Acts chapter 19. What took place in the first seven verses of Acts chapter 19? A rebaptism. Don't forget it. A rebaptism took place there in the city of Ephesus. And in Acts 19, where Paul spent it in Ephesus, he said in verse 21, After these things were ended, Luke wrote these words, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. But he didn't know yet how he was going to get to Rome, He just knew that he wanted to go to Rome and preach the gospel there also. Now come to chapter 20, where he speaks to the elders of the church at Ephesus. And he says in verse 22, And now behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. Or await for me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Now in chapter 21, he comes to the city of Jerusalem. The apostles at Jerusalem, James, wants him to go into the temple and take upon him a vow so that he might be seen in the temple fulfilling a small aspect of the law of Moses, so that the Jews in Jerusalem would be content that Paul had not repudiated all of the law for Jews. Although it was understood, the law had been set aside for Gentiles. While he's in there, some of the men from Ephesus, unconverted Jews, haters of Paul, spotted him, and believing that he must have brought Trophimus, who was a Greek, into the temple, accused him of profaning the temple, and so a riot ensues, and Claudius Lysias, the chief captain, has to come and rescue him. He asks for permission to speak, and so we come to chapter 22. Chapter 22 is Paul's defense on the stairs of the castle in Jerusalem of the Romans, and he gives it in the Hebrew tongue, and they give him fine attention all the way to verse 21, where he said that unspeakable word, Gentiles, you and me. And they threw dirt in the air, tore off their clothes, and tried to tear him. And so Claudius Lysias delivers him again. And because he has to know why he's keeping him, he gives him another opportunity to address the Jews, and that was chapter 23. And when Paul saw that they did not want to hear the truth, he divided them by pointing out the differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and lining himself up with the Pharisees wise man. So these Jews, 40 of them, make a vow, an oath, that they will neither eat nor drink until they have killed the Apostle Paul. And they get the chief priests to go along with their conspiracy to ask of Claudius Lysias another opportunity. And if he brings them down, these 40 men are going to fall on him and kill him before the Romans can stop them. They are bloodthirsty wretches and haters of Jesus Christ, demon-possessed as a nation, according to the prophecy of our Lord. The Lord delivers Paul from all of that because the will of the Lord is being done. Paul's going to Rome. Brethren, Paul is going to Rome. We don't read in chapter 19 about Paul in the Spirit saying, I want to visit Rome and think that it was just some vacation idea of his. He was being led to Rome. And he's going to get to Rome. And so he's taken by 470 armed men of the Roman Empire to the city of Caesarea to await their further examination. 
under Felix the governor. And so we come to chapter 24. And after five days, Ananias the high priest descended with the elders. I want to tell you one more time that this descent here, if you look at a map, it's going to cause you great problems. It's a descent from the height, the altitude of Jerusalem, right. down to a coastal town of Caesarea. But it's used repeatedly in the book of Acts. After five days, Ananias the high priest descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullus, who informed the governor against Paul. I want you to notice that it took them only five days. They were waylaid in their conspiracy, and they didn't get to kill Paul. But it only took them five days, and the high priest made arrangements so that he could travel to Caesarea in order to pursue this man, Paul, that they could have him killed. They are bloodthirsty for the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to ask you a question, though, at this point. How thirsty are 40 men? Are they going to get thirstier? The will of the Lord be done. Brethren, the Apostle Paul, the last chapter he ever ever wrote in the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 4, when he said, I have finished my course, I have fought a good fight, I have kept the faith, he said, no man stood with me. When he finally gets to Rome, he's all alone. But he said, the Lord stood with me and delivered me out of the mouth of the lion and that he'll deliver anyone who puts their trust in him. It's a glorious testimony. And here we see the Lord delivering Paul time after time after time. And so we have 40 very thirsty Jews who haven't been able to drink because they haven't been able to kill the apostle Paul. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for your power and glory in protecting your apostle. Instead of coming with proof and evidence, instead of bringing those Jews from Ephesus that could lay eyewitness accounts down that the Apostle Paul was profaning the temple, they bring an orator that with smooth and enticing words, they could move this governor. And that is the way that many of those that hold error defend their error and promote their error with smooth words. God has not chosen us to use such words. In fact, he warns us against them. And so before I start into his speech, just hold your fingers there at Acts 24 and look at first at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. There are several verses that warn about flattery, that warn about swelling words of vanity, that warn about vain philosophy that warn about good words and fair speeches. All these are warnings against false teachers because God usually hasn't called men that have the gift of eloquence like that. God called men that were fishermen like Peter, that when they began to speak, everyone knew that they were unlearned men, but they could lay forth the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's a simple message, brethren. Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. You don't need a great deal of eloquence to present that message. And when you start presenting it with eloquence, that means that you are trying to wrap it up in wrapping paper to present it to men who are not born of the Spirit. Because men born of the Spirit want to hear it in its unadorned state. Just the plain preaching of God's Word. Look at how Paul preached. 2 Corinthians 2.17 For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God but as of sincerity but as of God in the sight of God speak we in Christ. That's how Paul preached contrary to many. Turn the page to chapter 3 and verse 12. Seeing then that we have such hope we use great plainness of speech not great embellishment of speech but great plainness of speech. Chapter 4 and verse 2. We have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. They just laid forth the truth to every man's conscience, and if a man was born again and had the Spirit of God, his conscience would say, Amen. That's the truth. Right. That's the truth. First Corinthians says, 
chapters 12 through 14, in telling us why we, they ought not to speak in tongues at Corinth is because if unbelievers or unlearned men came in, they wouldn't know what was being said. But that if, edific- that if the gift of prophecy was being used, which was preaching and teaching, they would be able to hear the secrets of their souls made manifest, and they could fall down on their faces and say, the Lord is in you of a truth. Because their conscience would tell them that what they were hearing was the truth. Amen. But so much today is just music. How does that reveal anything in your soul? It's just a bunch of noise. It's a bunch of excitement. None of that reveals anything in your soul. But the preaching of God's word, simply in plainness of speech, to someone that's been born again, they can respond to that. And we don't want anyone else to respond to it. Or we end up with a bunch of tares mixed among the wheat by our own design, which would be foolish on our parts. Paul said, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And when I was among you, I did not use pretty speech. I was with you in fear and trembling and in tears that your faith would stand in the power of God and not in the wisdom of men. That's how we present the truth. So now we come back and we look at these Jews resorting, as so many do today, to create a pulpit image of eloquence, gentility, polish, refinement, so that everyone can be comfortable because our pastor is such a wonderful man. No one ought to ever be a member of a church for any pastor. They ought to be a member of a church for the bishop of their souls. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And pray for a pastor that regardless of his speech might study and lay out the word of God without fear of men or compromise. And there's very little of it left in our society. And there was precious little of it even in these days. Did you notice that in 2 Corinthians 2.17 he said, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. Let me chase a short rabbit that I didn't plan on. Very short. They say, textual criticism says, the oldest manuscripts must be the best manuscripts. You know, we say all the manuscripts must be the best manuscripts not counting the two, the one, one in, a, in the Vatican library and the other in a Catholic monastery wastebasket. That is Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. Neither of them ever used and, and incredibly altered. All the rest of the manuscripts pretty much agree with one another. Textual critics say the oldest must be the best because it's closest to the apostles. But did you notice what the apostle warned us about? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. And Paul wrote that around 55 A.D. So don't think there wasn't corruption going on immediately. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he would make reference to an epistle written to the churches that somebody had forged his name at the bottom. Don't you ever fall for that. Fall for the manuscripts that have all the fruit of men laying down their lives for them, not collecting dust in the Pope's library. Those are their two favorite idolized manuscripts. They weren't used. They didn't convert anyone. They're they're mutilated texts that you can read about from a number of sources. Acts chapter 24, Tertullus. And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him. That is our brother Paul, saying, Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency a few words." Now, can you feel the orator coming through in the first four verses of this chapter? The flattery? Oh, he sounds like the Jews love the Romans. The Jews were not lovers of the Romans. Just pick up your history book and see how how many troops the Roman Empire had to leave in Judea to keep those unruly people under control. 
But here he's sounding like they're always thankful for Felix in every place at all times for his goodness toward their nation. And history tells us nothing like that about Felix. But nevertheless, I don't need to tell you that about history because you know that this man is not here to present truth. This man is here to get a governor to release Paul so that they can cut his throat. Now here he takes, he's, he's flattered the governor to win his favor. Now he tears into our brother Paul. Verse 5. For we have found this man a pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes who also hath gone about to profane the temple whom we took and would have judged according to our law. But the chief captain Lysias came upon us and with great violence took him away out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come unto thee, by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things whereof we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, saying that these things were so. Now listen to that. Of all these things of which we accuse him. Well, let's see. They accused him of being a pestilent fellow. Didn't you learn in about the second grade, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me? A pestilent fellow. How much proof is there in those words? A mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world. I'm glad they realized his ministry was quite wide, but they couldn't prove what they said. And a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. A ringleader is someone in charge of a notorious band. This wasn't any notorious band sedition. If Paul had been seditious, they would have respected him more because they were all seditious against Rome. Remember when Jesus Christ was put on trial, whom did they give up for the Lord Jesus Christ? Barabbas. And what was he in prison for? Murder and sedition. They didn't care about murder or sedition, but here they are accusing the apostle Paul of it. A pestilent fellow Pestilent is someone that's injurious or dangerous to religion or the morals or public peace. Noxious, dangerous man. You know what the Apostle Paul says about himself in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2? He says he behaved himself like a gentle nurse among the Thessalonians. And I believe his testimony far more than I do Tertullus. Paul was a gentleman. He conducted himself like a nurse with the Thessalonians. Paul didn't profane the temple. Paul was in the temple to fulfill a vow. He was in the temple for the opposite reason. They accused him, and he hadn't taken Trophimus in there. And these deceitful Jews, why didn't they lay the charge on out here in the open about what it meant to profane the temple? Do you know what it meant? To take a Greek in there. Do you know who they were speaking to? Felix. Why didn't they say he was going to take someone to the temple like you, Felix? These little liars, they don't care about truth. They just wanted to destroy Paul. Do you understand that? They're accusing Paul of profaning the temple because they thought he took an Ephesian named Trophimus in there. But if Felix ever tried to visit the temple, he wouldn't be allowed in there either. They don't care about truth. And it's a shame that the Jewish nation, has there ever been a more favored nation religiously, up to that time, no. They were given the oracles of God, the covenants of God, the promises of God, and God came and dwelt with them in their tabernacle, in their temple. He led them by day and by night. He protected them from all their enemies. He blessed them abundantly until they were in a land flowing with milk and honey. He said, of all the nations of the earth, I've only known you. What a blessing they had. Look at how they're behaving now because they've been turned over to a reprobate mind and they fulfill it for the next 20 years until the Romans, Titus, come and wipe them out, take them away. Paul wasn't seditious. Has there ever been a man that preached more that they ought to obey the Roman powers that be, like Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, submit yourself to every ordinance of man, render tribute to whom tribute is due? Now that's pretty loyal, isn't it? And that's what the Apostle Paul taught. And I can tell you that he taught the words that Jesus taught because of Matthew 28, 20 that we read this morning. And so he would have taught, render unto Caesar 
the things that belong to Caesar. He wasn't guilty of sedition. He wasn't a mover throughout the world. Now this ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, they use that term to describe Christians in Judea. Outside of Judea, what were the disciples called? First at Antioch, Christians. In Judea, they were called by the Jews, Nazarenes. Why was they, why'd they call them Nazarenes? Because Jesus was known as Jesus Christ of Nazareth. First of all, and second of all, anyone from Nazareth was considered to be of a despicable origin. That's why we can read in John chapter 4, I believe it is, or John chapter 1, when Nathaniel and Philip are discussing the Lord Jesus Christ, the statement is made, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because that was the general understanding among the Jews. But I want to tell you something. In Matthew chapter 2 and verse 23, Jesus Christ grew up in Nazareth for a purpose, that he could fulfill that which was spoken of the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Because there was nothing in the Lord Jesus Christ that would cause men to desire him, naturally speaking. For those of you who love little Bible quizzes, go handle Matthew 2.23 in your spare time. He shall be called a Nazarene. Don't go there now. Just write, make a little note and go read about it later and see if you can find it for me in the prophets. I'll help you out of it when you get to wit's end. Acts chapter 24. All the Jews agreed with what Tertullus said. He said it with great, great swelling words of vanity. I want to remind you that the Apostle Paul warned us of the, the, with these words. Mark them which cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such, there's no compromise in true religion. Right. For they that are such, that make divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine that Paul taught, they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Let's not worry about good words or fair speeches, but let's hold strictly to the Word of God. If we can't pronounce it clearly, you can all read it. Did you enjoy my Cecilia last Sunday evening? I'm not ashamed to tell you that. I absolutely went blank on poor Cilicia. I looked at that verse, and I could have pronounced elephant. I didn't know what was going to come out of my mouth, and I just kept going. I want to tell you this because I want to just bless the Lord that he is able to tie up a tongue so that it can't get any word out. And he did me last Sunday night for one word, just to remind me to pay attention to my reading and my pronunciation. I hope that all of you heard that so that you know what I'm talking about. It was a blessing to me because it reminded me to be patient with my children. And it was painful for it to happen because in one second, my conscience, while I was still preaching to you, was reminding me why it was happening to me. I wanted to share that with you. That's a rabbit I wish that didn't exist. I want you to be on notice, brethren, that nice speeches and good words, fair speeches and swelling words and enticing words is not where the truth is. Right. The truth is in the Word of God, Amen. regardless of how it's spoken, regardless of the pulpit manner, who opens the Word of God and shows us from Scripture what God has given us. Let's go to verse 10. Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered. Now remember, brethren, he's under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And I don't think he does a bad job in comparison to Tertullus. Amen. Without any preparation. Do you know what, Tert what Tertullus did for five days? He practiced it over and over and over and over again, exactly what ought to be said to move this governor. Paul's doing this with no preparation or meditation whatsoever. For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation... I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues, 
nor in the city. Neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Now after many years I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings, whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with multitude nor with tumult, who ought to have been here before thee and object if they had aught against me. Or else let these same here say, if they have found any evil doing in me while I stood before the council. Except it be for this one voice that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question by you this day. There's Paul's testimony and what an excellent job he does by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost without preparation. A very big difference from Tertullus. I want, to note, I want us to notice a few things from this. First of all, he addresses Felix, the Roman governor, with respect. And we shall give respect to our civil rulers, no matter whether they be pagans or Christians. It is the office we respect because the office is created by God, regardless of the man in the office. Just as we expect our children to obey us as parents, even though they know that we are imperfect as parents and as individuals, though we hold an office that God has given us. We expect our wives to reverence the husbands, though the husbands are very imperfect men. They hold an office that God gave them over the wives, and we must always respect the office and the man in the office by virtue of the office. There are only 12 days, Felix, since I first came to Jerusalem. How in the world in 12 days... Could I create a tumult and build a base for sedition against the Roman Empire? That's his appeal in verse 11. There hasn't been nearly enough time. Then in verse 12, I was not found in the temple disputing with anyone. I wasn't raising up the people. I wasn't doing it in the synagogues. I wasn't doing it in the city. And they can't prove these things that they're accusing me of. Now we come to precious words. And brethren, can you all say these? I heard some amens as I was reading through it. I hope that you can say these words. But this I confess unto thee. I do have a confession to make. I will admit something that's true about me. That after the way which they call heresy, the sect of the Nazarenes, the way that they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers. Are you willing to continue to worship? And are you willing to confess it? when they call it heresy. We're called heretics by most now. And we would be by the rest if they knew about us. But what if you had to lay down your, lay down your life because you were being accused of heresy? Would you still be able to say with so many martyrs that said, I confess that what you are accusing me of, of loving the Lord Jesus Christ and having no regard for the Pope of Rome as any bishop of his, is true. Would you be able to say that? Would you be able to say that you worship God after the way that they call heresy and to do it with confidence, even if it would cost you your life? May the Lord give us grace that we could say it and live it accordingly. So worship I the God of my fathers. And brethren, this is what I preached to you this morning. And this is what I preached to you last Sunday, if you're able to recognize and put them together. Believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Now, if Felix had asked Tertullus and the high priest, do you believe all things that are written in the law and the prophets? They would have said, amen, we do. We're Jews. Of course we do. We've memorized them since we were a child. We read them every Sabbath day. We read them in the temple. We read them in the synagogues. We love the scriptures. Can't you see this little box of them that I have here on my forehead? Can you see them here written on my 
pant legs? Haven't you been to my house and seen them written over my door? But the Apostle Paul was the only one that believed all things that were written in the Law and the Prophets. Because what was written in the Law... Jesus said, search the Scriptures, for they testify of me. Paul believed everything that was written in those Scriptures about the Lord Jesus Christ. And right there is our faith. They can call us any name they wish. And they've called the martyrs many names, and the martyrs laid down their lives. But do you confess that you worship the God of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you believe all things that are written in the Law and the Prophets? I hope you do. That is our faith. And I confess to thee, Felix, verse 15, that I have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. Now, not all of them allowed that, but the Pharisees allowed that, remember? The Pharisees believed in angels and spirits and a resurrection of the dead, but the Sadducees did not. But the straightest sect of the Jews' religion, the most conservative of the Jews, the Pharisees, did allow that there was going to be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. Because what does Solomon write as far back as Ecclesiastes? What does Enoch testify about in the eighth from the seventh from Adam? That God is going to come with his angels and judge men, ungodly men, for all their ungodly deeds. Solomon said that verse that we shall memorize also. If you want to get ahead, here's a verse. Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. There's a judgment prophesied and a resurrection for men to have to face up to all of their ungodly deeds. And so Paul testifies that he believed what the Pharisees allowed, and so he shouldn't be guilty of any great crime. And he goes on to say in verse 16, brethren, there's only one resurrection coming. I got I to run that down in verse 15. There shall be two resurrections of the dead, one of the just called the rapture, and then seven years, and then some sort of a resurrection, and then a thousand years, and then another resurrection, and then a... There shall be a resurrection of the dead, right. both of the just and the unjust. The verse is so simple, and yet so many have believed and taught and heard something so different. There is a resurrection, and that single resurrection includes both the just and the unjust. Do do you all remember? There's a rapture coming. A rapture! Jesus is going to come and take all of the believers out of this world and leave everyone else here. Buses are going to careen off the road. Airplanes are going to crash. The stock market's going to fail. Production lines are going to stop at the auto plants as Christians are yanked out of this world. That's nowhere in the Bible. That's nowhere in the Bible. But, oh, they talk so much about the rapture. There shall be a resurrection, both of the just and unjust. That should be simple enough right there. A singular resurrection involving both parties. Do you need more help with the English language? And I'm not saying that to anyone in here. I love all of you, brethren, and I hope you understand it plainly. There is no such thing as a secret rapture taught in the Bible. But, yes, yes. Stop your stuttering and ask the question. Is the question, what about the two women that are grinding in Matthew chapter 24, that one will be taken and the other be left? Is that what you're butt-butting about? I'm just doing this for your education, my brethren. Go back and read Matthew chapter 24. That woman was taken by Titus Caesar in 70 A.D., and the other was left. That is the simplest passage in the, in the whole earth. The only reason it's a difficulty is because <laughs> someone has lied to you about that passage. Right. They've gone into Matthew 24. They don't believe anything about 70 A.D. and the 27 different prophecies in the New Testament about Jesus coming to wreak vengeance on that nation of Israel for them crucifying him in 70 A.D. They forget that Matthew 24 is about that coming of Christ. 
And the prince of the people that came, Titus Caesar, came and took away some of those Jews. One was taken and the other was left. How was one left? Because when the armies encompassed the city of Jerusalem, they left. And they hid in the mountains across the river Jordan until the siege was over. You should hear them try to get around the... Why does Jesus say in the very same context... Woe be unto the women that are giving suck in those days. What if a woman was nursing and Jesus came and raptured her to heaven while she was nursing? Wouldn't that be the greatest combination in the world, women? You're nursing your child and you get to go to heaven. But why does Jesus say that that's a horrible thing? Why does Jesus say that, I pray that the coming isn't on the Sabbath day? What would be wrong with after hearing a good Sunday morning sermon and singing praises to the Lord... You went home, and Jesus came in his secret rapture. What would be wrong with Jesus coming on Sunday or the Sabbath day? Or are all of those verses talking about the fact that if the Roman armies encompassed the city of Jerusalem in the wintertime on a Sabbath day when you're nursing a baby, that it is going to be a very trying experience for you to avoid the Jewish police who would limit you to a Sabbath day's journey because it was the Sabbath, It's cold because it's winter, and you're nursing a baby, and you're going to have to flee to the mountains of Judea. Amen. That's right. We believe all things that are written in the law and the prophets. Amen. They call us heretics. So be it, brethren. The truth has always been called heresy because it's always been in a very small minority. Right. I want you to look now at verse 16. And herein do I exercise. Some of you may be offended at my plainness of speech that I would use sarcasm against an error. Just go back and read 1 Kings 17 through 19 sometime tonight and read about Elijah as he speaks gently about the prophets of Baal and their God. I want you to hate error and love truth. It isn't something to play with. There are lives at stake. And there's the Lord Jesus Christ and his honor and glory at stake. They make him a liar because he said in Matthew chapter 24, all of these things shall come to pass on this generation. Verse 16, and herein do I exercise myself. Herein do I exercise myself. This is my exercise. This is what I work at hard. This is what I work at repetitively. This is what I think about and do every day. To have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. We read it last Sunday evening. Brethren, I want to remind you again about the gift of the conscience you have. I showed you from Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 10 that it's the candle of the Lord giving you light inside. It is something by which you can talk to yourself. There is a thing within, inside you, a tool, a mechanism an apparatus that God gave us that can accuse us when we do something wrong or it can excuse us and commend us when we do something right. Right. And Paul said, my conscience, I strive every day to obey my conscience. Now your conscience won't be much good if it's not taught. I mean, if we were to live in a society where polygamy was allowed, I'm I'm just thinking of an example. There's many examples that I could raise. If we were in a society where polygamy was allowed, no men would not even think about it, and the women would not even think about it. But then when the Bible's preached that God made one woman for one man, and that his, is his ideal, everyone that has the Spirit of God within them, their conscience would increase in learning so that they would become more and more convicted about that matter. And that's what preaching of the gospel is for. That's why Jesus said, go and teach all nations, baptizing them, and then teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Do you realize the pagan nations that the Apostle Paul was preaching in? They did not have a strong basis in the law of Moses. And so Paul had to teach them many things. We want to learn as much as we can so that our conscience becomes wiser and wiser in directing us every day to do what is right and keeping us from what is wrong. If you do not have a preacher that teaches you the truth, your conscience remains weak. If you have a preacher that does not provoke your conscience to get stronger, if you're not provoked to let your conscience speak 
you'll be seared and you'll silence it. Right. And brethren, the more we live in sin, I, I said this last Sunday, I, I know I said some of this, the more we sin, our conscience becomes less sensitive. Right. And the less we sin, and the more we put sin out of our lives and mortify the members of our flesh, the conscience can become more and more sensitive to where it can be a great guide. And the, look at the Apostle Paul. I exercise myself that I can be without offense, never violating my conscience toward God or toward men. Whatever my conscience tells me to do toward God, I do it. What my conscience tells me to do toward men, I do it. May God bless us to similarly obey our consciences. And may the Lord bless us to have consciences that increase in judgment and understanding. Amen. That is why we preach. He says in verse 17, Now after many years I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings. I didn't come to raise a tumult. I came to bring offerings. And certain Jews from Asia found me, but where are they? O noble Felix, where are they? They're not here to testify, are they? And these that are here, if they would testify truthfully, know that there is nothing, been evil, nothing evil been found in me yet. The only thing that they can object to is what I said when we were down in Jerusalem, and that is that the whole issue centers on the resurrection from the dead. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ inspired this through the Holy Spirit. Now, let me tell you a secret about Felix. Felix understood the resurrection from the dead. Look at the next verse. And this is the most difficult verse for commentators to interpret in, the, in Acts chapter 24, and I do not know why. Just look at it. And when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way, Felix already knew about Christianity. He already knew about the resurrection of the dead. He already understood how central it was to Paul's religion and to the religion of the Nazarenes in Judea or the Christians throughout the Roman Empire. He had a more perfect understanding of that way. So as soon as he hears that that is the main issue, he says the trial's over. I'll wait until I get to meet with Claudius Lysias and see what actually happened down there in that city. Because the Lord arranged for Felix to have had some exposure to the Christian religion and also for Paul to end up his short little testimony by saying the real issue that I'm here is the resurrection of the dead. And when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way, that's the Christian way, he deferred them. He put them off. May the will of the Lord be done. Amen. He put off the Jews. Now, brethren, I want to tell you something. Will you all follow me closely? There are 40 men sitting in there listening to these proceedings. And they are envisioning a big gulp that they're going to buy on the way home when they can stop at the pantry. They're envisioning it so much that they're salivating if they can still produce any after five days of not having anything to drink. And then Governor Felix says, this trial's over. I'm going to wait until I get to talk to Claudius Lysias. Do you know how thirsty they got in one moment of time? And I say all of this to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ who stood with the Apostle Paul and delivered him. And there should be no one in this assembly that ever fears any man or any event because if the Lord stands with you, there is nothing to be afraid of. Right. There are some thirsty Jews. If you want to remember Acts chapter 23 and 24, it's, it's the 40 thirsty Jews. And they're still thirsty in 25 unless they broke their oath. But... Men like this probably didn't take long. Right. And he commanded, he says in the last part of verse 22, when Lysias, the chief captain, shall come down, I will know the uttermost of your matter. And he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty. What? The Roman Empire? Letting Paul have liberty. And that he, that is the centurion, should forbid none of his acquaintance to minister or come unto him. Free movement for Paul, and any guest that he wanted at any time could come and be with him. The Lord is taking care of Paul. Amen. And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. 
This Felix that had been exposed to Christianity wanted to hear more. Brethren, this is is a sad lesson. And it's one that ought to grip all of us that as I close with it this evening, his wife was a Jewess. Now history tells us that this was no good relationship nor good marriage. This was an adulterous marriage and that it's not important. I'm not trying to teach you history. I'm just telling you that these two people are well known in the annals of history. And this was an adulterous marriage. And the only reason, the only reason I bring that up is because I want to show you what Paul preached when this man wanted to know more about the Christian faith. He did not preach prophecy. He did not preach Bible economics. Here's what he preached. Verse 25, And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled. Let's stop right there. Several years ago, I preached you a sermon from this verse, Acts chapter 24 and verse 25. He reasoned of righteousness. There is a God in heaven that requires righteousness of all of us. And he reasoned of that with Felix. And I'll bet it was wonderful reasoning. I wish I could read it. He reasoned of righteousness. God has commandments, and they better be obeyed. I reasoned with you this morning that God will not allow any compromise in the keeping of his commandments. And Paul did the same thing with this governor. He did not think of this as an opportunity to soft sell the gospel or to pretty it up. He reasoned of righteousness, and then he reasoned of self-denial. And this man was not known for self-denial. If you want to look up and read in history about Governor Felix, he was known for extreme covetousness. He was not known for self-denial. And here's Paul with an opportunity to present Christ. He presents not historical facts that could be believed by almost anyone. He reasons of righteousness and self-denial and judgment to come. Do you mean he has to preach on hell to Governor Felix? Is that wise? I hear, I hear the sheep starting to move around and, and saying among themselves, is that wise? For a man to have an opportunity to preach the gospel and to preach about hell. Of course it's wise. This is by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. But brethren, brethren, this verse is for me in that sense. I want the other part of the verse. Felix trembled. Felix trembled. Felix had a conscience that told him that what he was hearing was truth and that the way he was living was false. And he trembled about it. You say, can a natural man have a trembling like that? Yes, a natural man can have a trembling like that, that there is a God in heaven with eternal power. But it's how they react that shows all the difference between someone that has been born again and someone that has been not, not been born again. Right. In Romans chapter 1, men can go outside and realize that there is a Godhead with eternal power. But when... They, Oh, Romans chapter 1 says they have a complete, clear understanding of the truth. Right. Clear understanding of the truth. It's been made manifest to them. They know it. But they choose because there is within their heart only enmity toward God. There is no love toward Him nor love of truth. So they choose not to give glory to the Creator, but to give it to the creature. They choose not to be thankful, and then their foolish hearts are darkened. That's the order. This man right here is conv- we don't know his state of his soul. By the evidence, it, by the evidence, he's in hell. I don't try to find unconverted elect everywhere I read in the New Testament. Right. I just want to say to you that if you ever tremble and you ever hear something that convicts you and moves you, I've tried to teach you this, and it's one of the best. Secrets, and it's not a secret because the Word of God is filled with it, that I've tried to tell you in the last 15 months, if you are caused to tremble or convicted or moved, even in the smallest amount, do something with it right now. I don't care if you leave this room. If you can't pray in here while I'm still talking, go out of this room and make peace with God over whatever you're convicted about. Make peace with God right then. Every second you delay... You are saying no to your conscience. You are weakening its strength. And you are giving place to the devil. 
Because that is the candle of the Lord that is testifying to you of truth. And every bit of resistance that you put up toward it, you are silencing it and weakening it. And the devil has a foothold in your life. And your flesh will take over. He trembled. And what was his response? Come here and pray with me. Was that his response? Was it pray for me? Was it help me? Was it what must I do to be saved? Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. He hoped also that money should have been given him of Paul that he might lose him. There's his covetousness for you. Wherefore he sent for him the oftener and communed with him, looking for money. He trembled. He didn't act on that trembling. Now look. All that's left that we know about Felix is he was waiting for a cash bribe to let Paul out of prison. But after two years, Porcius Festus came into Felix's room, that is, took his office, and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. He had his freedom, but Paul spent two years in Caesarea, in prison. Felix did not release him, and he's still bound when the new man takes over, and he gets to present his case to him also. The most important, there's several things that I can give you, but two of them are important. Verses 14 through 16, about the way they call heresy. Is that how you want to worship the God of the fathers of Paul, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And believing all things that are written in the law and the prophets? Exercising a conscience to be void of offense at all times toward God and man? That is a goal for us, brethren. That is a goal. That's a higher goal than anything you will do this week. Anything else you will do is inferior to this goal of verses 14 through 16. And the last thing I want to say to you in your reading, in your praying, in the night, from preaching, from singing, from talking with a brother, whenever you are convicted or you are trembling in the least bit in your soul, act on that conviction from God. Because if you don't, it can be withdrawn. You can be hardened and blinded. And the next thing you're waiting for is simply a cash payment to let Paul out. May the Lord have mercy upon us. Brethren, if he doesn't have mercy, we're lost. I pray God and you in God's stead as his ambassador to you tonight that whenever your conscience convicts you, I don't care when it is, obey it. Confess your sins. Repent. Make whatever is right that is wrong in your life. And humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he'll exalt you in due time. Do not let a trembling pass. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.